Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to the first episode of the Independent Intel Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Bumani, and today, today's a good day. Today's an introduction to something new, something fresh, something independent, something great. And I'm here to give you guys a new podcast on the scene about NFL and NBA takes. It's something created by myself, and I do have a few experiences in themselves dealing with podcasts. I created my own podcast with this podcast sports blog website. Then I did the second one at the whistle affiliated with Jackson State University, the first student-led podcast in our school's history. And here we are. I'm here right here, something independent, creating something fresh for the, for the people that want to hear it. It's going to be on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. And the hope is that it can create into something magnificent, something that can last the test of time, something I could build with you guys. And so how did this podcast come into its origin? It really all started with an idea, something that I thought of in my brain at first and then utilized various independent resources and affiliations from a girlfriend, her family, things of that nature, and help create this platform for all of us to sit here and listen to. And it's going to come from an individual such as me who has some history dealing with sports. I'm a Saints fan. I'm a multimedia journalist major from JSU, currently attending Syracuse University as a master major in magazine, newspaper, online journalism. So I have history in terms of being a journalistic content creator, producing freelance articles, speaking on various situations for collegiate TV stations and things of that nature. I'm just here bringing my own independent thoughts to the process. And I want to be able to create something that's tangible, fresh, new, unique for the masses. And coming into this, I'm a fan of the Saints. I'm an avid Saints fan. When it comes to the NBA, I don't really have an allegiance or an alliance towards any team. I'm open to all teams. But your fandom is important, but it's also important to be a fan and at the same time be unbiased as possible. And that process started very young. I've been enamored and involved with the Saints since I was born and raised in New Orleans before we moved to Shreveport, Louisiana. And that love didn't die when I moved from New Orleans to Shreveport. It continued. But even through that process, I've been able to decipher your fandom from what you're able to see, what's tangible, what's real. I'm not one of those individuals that's like, I'm a fan of this team that could do no wrong. And when we do do wrong, it's everybody else's fault that isn't the most important aspect of the team. So let's say you love the Saints, such as me, and you feel like Drew Brees is absolved from any criticism. It's your line's fault for not blocking good enough. Or that receiver, he should have ran that route a little bit harder so he can get open and get the catch, things of that nature. It's not how I roll. I'm one of those individuals that look at it for how I see it. And if somebody's at fault, they're going to get the criticism from me. I'm going to explain why. I'm not just going to say he's trash and that's it. I'm going to try to provide my sizable insight to the situation so everybody can walk away from a feeling that's a fair innate take. So independent intel, that's what it's going to be for me. Um, week one is really all about laying the foundation, laying the groundwork. But from then on, we're going to have four weekly topics. Um, two of them are going to be NFL-oriented. Two of them are going to be NBA-oriented. They're going to provide my insight and intel about it. But before we ever preside that, preside, present that intel and insight, we're going to talk about the news topic at hand. So today, NFC favorites is going to be the one NFL topic. And then the NBA, I'm going to get an overview for all 30 teams. Now, I'm only going to do one topic for the NBA and one topic for NFL because we're a little bit constrained on time because I kind of want to talk to you guys about how important this podcast is to me in terms of how it came to be created, what I expect it to be for the foreseeable future, and things of that nature. 
And so, like I said before, avid Saints fan, and why I want this to be focused on the NFL aspect is because, you know, through my Saints fandom, I've looked at other NFL teams and have deciphered and understood other NFL players, um, schemes, things of that nature. And I look at myself as a very knowledgeable savant of various teams across the league. Um, since my team is in the NFC South, I know a lot about our NFC South opponents, the Buccaneers, the Falcons, the Panthers, known about those teams' trial and tribulations against us at our expense of an ability to possibly win the division. Um, I know it has, it's been kind of a minute since the Buccaneers have won the NFC South, but you know, I do remember times where they were competitive and at the very least being us. And so going back to my Saints allegiance, fell in love with these guys since I was young. And I've seen a lot. I've seen us win the Super Bowl in 09 when I was in sixth grade. In 2011, I saw us have a heartbreaking defeat against the Niners in a divisional playoff game where Vernon Davis practically owned our whole defense. Uh, I've seen the Minneapolis miracle to some, but to many Saints, it's the Minneapolis nightmare. And then the atrocity known as the Rams reaching the Super Bowl at the expense of a very belated call. Well, not even a belated call, a no call at that. But Tommy Lee Lewis is going out for a pass and he was hit out of bounds on a personal foul call that was just never meant to be. And so that's kind of been my status in terms of my fandom with the Saints. And it's led me to this moment right here. I consider myself an individual that's very well-rounded with the NFL. I don't just follow the Saints. Like I said before, I follow an array of teams. And that's really given me the confidence when not to feel like I could be a very productive journalist in a foreseeable future. It, with any NFL team, the same goes with the NBA. Um, like players, but I don't really have a strong alliance to a team like I do in the NFL. My favorite player, I might add, I'm going to talk about him a little bit today when I get across to their team, De'Aaron Fox of the Sacramento Kings. Just love his swagger. Just love the way he plays basketball. He's a speeding blur, bullet, a legit blur. Arguably, it's not even arguably, I think we can all say that he might have been the best point guard in the 2016 NBA draft. But since he plays for the Sacramento Kings, when he got his extension, like all rookies during that time period did, Guys were looking at it like, Darren Fox got a dang near a, a mass contract? Like, what has he done? And it's one of those things where it's like, he's done a lot. You know what I'm saying? He's averaged 21 a game last season. But since the Kings just are very inept in terms of being able to produce quality basketball for a talented franchise, he just doesn't get the recognition that he generally deserves. And so that's really my knowledge of basketball, football on that type of level. It's very innate. It's very strong. It's full of legit possibilities, and it's one of those things where I'm just eternally grateful just to be able to be a part of this process and produce content centered around that as well. And so going back on an NFL tip, like I said, my allegiance to the Saints is massive, and today when we go in-depth about the topics about the NFC teams, NFC favorites have a lot of teams that can come out the conference. It's not like the AFC that's pretty understood. We know that the Kansas City Chiefs, defending champs, probably going to come out that AFC conference. They're the Super Bowl champs. They have Patrick Mahomes. He's a great player. Beyond just a great player, he's on his pace to being not just transit, transcendent, but maybe even the greatest of all time. I know he kind of gets a lot of flack because his recognition is starting to come the more he continues to be successful. But in the NFC, you don't have that KC. Even the AFC has that Pittsburgh. You just don't have that clear-cut two-team race. You got about, like, four teams. Saints are 10-2. Green Bay is 9-3. And in Seattle and the Rams, both from the same division, the NFC West, kind of fill out the three and four spots at eight and four. So all these teams present unique ways to be able to get to the big game and crazy cons to not even get out of the first playoff game. 
And so that's the NFC in a nutshell. And it's kind of been that way the past few years. Um, I think you can make a case that every year there's a different team in the NFC championship game en route to get to the Super Bowl. Um, not every year, but recently. I know in 2017, you had the Vikings and the Eagles. Um, in 2018, you had the 2018-2019 season, you had the Saints and the Rams. And then most recently, you had the Niners and the Packers. So an array of teams in the NFC have opportunities to present themselves towards achieving the Lombardi Trophy. All those teams that I've just listed, they all didn't get the championship, but they were given the opportunity to be able to compete for it. And that's what you like in a conference like that. Competitive balance. We always hear fans wanting competitive balance in sports. And while I feel at times it's a little bit unrealistic when guys glorify the significance of balance and how man, if there's no balance, that makes the sport unfair. The sport's not ethical if there's no balance in certain leagues. And it's like, well, every era had an age of dominance. You know, in the NBA in the 80s, it was the Lakers and the Celtics. In the 90s, it was the Bulls. In the 2000s, the early part, it was the Lakers. Kind of the middle part, you can make a strong case, it was the Spurs. And then if it wasn't the Spurs, it was the Pistons. And then that the latter half of the 2000s, Boston and L.A. played two times. And then don't even get me started on the, on, the, on the tens. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I just feel like competition is important. And you want to see a competitive game every time you turn on the TV, especially in the realm of sports. But when I hear about this perfect balance of uh, intensity and you don't know who's going to win um, a championship every year, it's just a little bit unrealistic in a lot of sports. A lot of sports and what people realize, especially in basketball, and I've heard some people even say baseball as well. And I've started to see it in a few cases in baseball, especially with the Dodgers, I think, getting to the World Series, I think, three or four times before they finally won one. You know, teams, if they have the resources to do so, which is what you want every good team to do, like a good team is kind of like a rich person. You know, rich people don't want to become poor again. They want to stay wealthy. And so one way that they stay wealthy is they cake up, cake up on their bread and they make sure that their finances are in tip-top shape and invest in a lucrative amount of things to make sure that when it's all said and done and they're dead, their family is able to keep their lineage intact with a nice flow of money. So that's sports. I mean, if you're a team that wins and you consider yourself a winning organization, you just don't want to win one championship and be like, ah, that's good enough. You know what I'm saying? You want to continue to win. And even if you're not given the best opportunity to win, you want to give at least the greatest opportunity to go out and defend your crown to the best of your ability. And that's what, a lot of teams in these leagues, such as the NBA and the NFL, do. They put their best foot forward. They try their hardest to make sure that they're able to compete for a championship, and they go from there. And so that's something that you have to respect and appreciate in itself. And, you know, the rant I just emitted right there, that's kind of what independent Intel is all about. We're going to go in depth about a variety of things. We're not just going to attack topics on the surface level. We're going to go as in-depth as possible to make sure everybody understands the nuance of a lot of these opinions. I think individuals kind of look at things like for what it is instead of what it can be. And when you look at teams in general, you know, everybody has their favorites in terms of this is what I think this team could achieve in terms of the highest level. But you have to be able to go as in-depth as possible to understand for to help other people understand why you think they have a chance to go as far, where you think they should go, things of that nature. And so that's really what I'm going to try to make this podcast truly define itself on topics itself, but also being able to go as in-depth as possible. 
and you know be able to shed light on the fact that every dog does have his day but everything is not what it seems all the time and before we dive into these topics i want to give a great shout out and a great appreciation to individuals that helped get me to this moment obviously jahari reynolds my girlfriend did a very impressionable job of me on pushing me to kind of get this podcast into fruition making it to a reality um i think providing me the resource to advertise on our instagram hopefully you guys are able to follow the instagram page at intel podcast for future updates on the podcast in general and then i want to give credence to the guys before me you know what i'm saying that helped me on previous works to feel like i have the potential and the ability to come within my own independent content and be able to say what i have to say at the highest level and those guys are my family members from at the whistle you know clement gibson martavian darius Joaquil joined the family ace uh you know those individuals really made it all happen um tamara she played a huge part as well those guys helped lay the foundation in terms of creating our own identity at jackson state university at a time where the student-led podcast wasn't a thing for any topic and we kind of helped stir that pot going and we kind of left the legacy behind that we truly appreciate and value as one that is our own and we want to continue to do that at the highest level for whatever we choose to do it doesn't have to just be on a podcast type level it could be for a work of art or a clothing brand or job opportunity things of that nature we want to put our best foot forward and allow the next generation to kind of look back and be like okay our predecessors help make it possible make it believable attainable and achievable to be able to do something that's your own and be able to prop it up as a creative form of content. And so for that, I greatly thank those individuals. And this is where we are. And this is where it's at. Independent Intel episode one, talking about a variety of topics. Two topics today, though, on a weekly basis, you're going to do the four. But two in general, we're going to do NFC favorites. Who are the NFC favorites? Got four teams in particular that I listed prior heading into it. And then in-depth analysis on all 30 NBA teams, not just the ones that won the championship or in the championship conversation last year in particular, that was the Los Angeles Lakers and the Miami Heat. But yeah, even the Sacramento Kings and my boy De'Aaron Fox, they're going to get some in-depth analysis and some love as well and appreciation. And that's the biggest thing I want this podcast to be. I don't want it to sit around two individuals or one topic that's thematically known in mainstream media. I kind of want to be in depth about a variety of things on a variety of teams. I have a lot to say about a lot of teams. And I think I pride myself on that because I try to stay up to date on every team, issues and things of that nature, because I don't want to ever feel left out of the loop or feel not in terms of putting my best opinion forward because I'm not up to date on the credence of certain things that are going on in the industry. And so that's how I plan to you know, move throughout this podcast and move across various content in the foreseeable future. Great example, Detroit Lions. You know, Matthew Stafford's been given a lot of praise and approval as being one of the more underrated quarterbacks in the game. I don't really view him that way because I remember watching the Detroit Lions when they had Kelvin Johnson in the early part of the 2010s. And so I've seen Matthew Stafford when the Lions were actually successful kind of be the main reason why they never lived up to the potential. But it's a conversation like that that I like to have and I'm able to have because I've remembered and I don't mind, you know, watching games about the Detroit Lions, keeping track of how certain players play remembering the tendencies that the media was telling to the audience about why the organization would come into a game and feel like we got to cater the play calling to this area of the offense because we feel like our quarterback 
such as Matthew Stafford, isn't capable enough of executing to his highest degree of difficulty for us to win. So with that, we're heading into NFC favorites. Four teams in particular in the NFC have a chance to, in my opinion, come out and represent the National Football Conference in the Super Bowl. You have the Seattle Seahawks, the Green Bay Packers, the New Orleans Saints, and the Los Angeles Rams. Now, first off, the Seattle Seahawks are a team we're going to pay homage to currently. Russell Wilson was going berserk, and he still is going berserk this season. He's completing 70% of his passes. He's throwing for 3,479 yards, 32 touchdowns, and 11 interceptions. But recently, one of the main reasons why the Seahawks have fell to 8-4 and has been a combination of inconsistency on the defensive end. We've kind of turned that around a little bit. And then offensively, Russell Wilson has not been putting his best foot forward. His last four games, he's thrown four touchdowns, three interceptions, while being sacked 16 times. And through that span, through that stretch of games, he hasn't cracked 300 yards passing as an individual. So when I look at the Seahawks, similar similar, um, this, similar situations that they're facing in terms of dilemmas, are right, offensive line still isn't that good. And defensively, they haven't been that good since the Legion of Boom was no more. And that was a huge part of why they kind of went on a little bit of a lull. But recently, their defense has kind of picked up the slack. They've had 14 sacks in the last four games, 21 sacks in the last five. But I feel like the seven-sack performance that they had against Buffalo is a little bit misleading because Josh Allen pretty much almost threw a party on them. Well, he did throw a party. He almost brought refreshments in terms of almost passed for over 400 yards. And However, that Seattle defense still, like I said before, is rather inconsistent. The Rams ran for over 100 yards on them. And the Giants recently, in their surprising, shocking upset defeat, as the team almost ran for 200 yards. Wayne Gallman had a day. Now, Saquon Barkley, who's out for the year with a detrimental ACL tear, hopefully he's able to get back and play at his fullest potential. But Wayne Gallman had a show. And so while the defense is turning a corner in recent weeks, the offense has sputtered. And the main reason behind that is because Russell Wilson is pressing. And a lot of that early on in the year was cool because in the first month of September, he could do no wrong. They put the ball in his hands like they haven't really done so in the past, and he was making great plays. But as the season went on, their offensive deficiencies started to show, and they've been very similar deficiencies that they've had the past few years. O-line has never been that good. Wasn't the greatest when Marshawn Lynch was the focal point of the offense, and it still sucks today. And so the more Russell Wilson continue to drop back to pass and have to basically elevate this team to various, various touchdown situations, he got put on his back a multitude of times. And so I think the best bet for Seattle is not to go back to the archaic type of offense that they were running the past two years, but just balance. Like they're going to have to run the football a little bit more than what they have. It'll protect Russell Wilson from getting murdered. And it'll also allow that defense, which is not the best in terms of stopping the pass or the run or allowing points from being on the field a bunch of the time. Now they're capable of doing it. They've ran for hundred yards as a team, eight of their 12 games, and they've been five and three in those games. So I'm not saying them running the football automatically translates to them winning, but it puts them in the best position possible because when they're able to be a balanced offensive attack, they're able to achieve their potential. Now, their next four games, they have the Jets, they're at the Washington football team, the Rams are at the crib, and then they're at San Francisco. So they're going to beat the Jets because the Jets are tanking. But these next three games are tough. Washington, they're going to fight for the playoff lives. The Rams, that's probably going to decide the division. And San Francisco, even though they're 5-7, and seven, they're a tough 5-7 and seven team led by Kyle Shanahan that finds intricate ways to make sure that their offense maximizes their fullest potential, even without their starting quarterback in Garoppolo and all-pro tight end George Kittle. Now, the Los Angeles Rams, they have the number two defense in football. It's one of the main reasons why I consider them an NFC favorite as well. Um, they have 11 total interceptions, 
Four overall by Darius Williams, who outside of Xavier Howard is maybe the second most underrated corner in the game. You have three picks by the seventh round. Phenom. Yeah, Phenom. Ohio State's Jordan Fuller. But Jalen Ramsey, the cream of the crop, they went all in and traded for him from Jacksonville. I think last season, um, they gave him the big bucks. They invested in him heavy, and it's translated to a huge amount of success. He's only allowed one touchdown pass and only 23 catches on the 46 times he's been targeted as at as a DB. Now, Aaron Donald leads the league in sacks, 11. Defensively, we have a guy like Aaron Donald who can take over the middle of the defensive line. He opens it up for everybody else on the edges, which probably is the main reason why Leonard Ford has seven sacks. Yes, Leonard Ford, the former top 10 pick selected by the Chicago Bears from Georgia, he's balling. The issue with the Rams that I have is that Jared Goff will probably ultimately hold them back. And the main reason why he'll probably ultimately hold them back is because he profits off of a very successful running game. And the running game has always been a focal point in Sean McVay's offensive zone scheme system. Now, in the past, they had a bell cow. And that bell cow was Todd Gurley. And in McVay's first two years with the team, Gurley could do no wrong. He was the man amongst boys at the running back position. Great hands out the backfield, could hit the hole, could bounce it to the outside. He was the truth. Then knee arthritis came, and that's kind of been Todd Gurley's career in a nutshell. Now, he's not on the Rams anymore. He's with the Falcons. And since he's left this season, they've had the run by committee. Daryl Henderson, Malcolm Brown, and Cam Akers are their trio of backs. And Henderson leads the team in rushing with 559. Brown second with 368. And then Cam Akers, the rookie from Florida State, rounds it out with 357. They have more rushing touchdowns, 18, than passing touchdowns, 17. And they've rushed over the century mark 10 times in 12 games. And the four times that they've ran more than they passed, they've won all of them. The problem is they haven't ran more than they've passed often enough. It's been eight games where they haven't, and they're even split four and four. Now, Jared Goff, 17 touchdowns, 10 picks, not bad, but he's up there in terms of throwing a ton of interceptions. And while he does have the strongest arm, he throws a nice ball, but he has a tendency to not read defenses properly, make mistakes, things of that nature, put the team in danger. And the two times that they lost to the Niners, well, they got swept, which may come back to bite him in the butt when it turns in terms of figuring out the seeding aspect of the playoffs in the NFC, golf was horrible, very horrible. Now, I understand the first time they played the Niners, why they wanted to ride the arm of golf to make it happen. Coming in, San Francisco's best corner was not Sherman, was not Emmanuel Mosley. It was Jason Verrett, a former primetime, big-time, first-round draft pick pickup for the Los San Diego Chargers, I might add, the currently Los Angeles Chargers. He was playing, and he was playing like he was a first-round pick. And so I just felt like, the Rams at that point, they didn't get to riding the arm of golf. And that wasn't the only game that they tried to ride the arm of golf and make stuff happen. There was a game against the Dolphins where he almost threw for like 70 times. He's not that guy. You know, he's not. Now, granted, they have a great receiving duo in Cooper Cup, Robert Woods, the two combined for 145 catches, 1,600 yards and seven touchdowns. But they're at their best when they're running the football. And the main reason why is because a running game protects, protects a very inconsistent golf who has a tendency to not know the nuances of defensive coverages. One of the main reasons why Sean McVay kind of utilizes golf like he's the scientist and golf's Frankenstein in terms of telling them where to go with the football prematurely in the huddle before the snap of the ball. And that, when you have a quarterback that's like that, you can't rely on him to come through in a clutch as the primary focal point of the offense. No, you just can't. And so, case in point, they played Tampa Bay really well defensively. But Goff let Tampa Bay hang around because while he did almost throw for 400 yards, he threw for two picks. And this is the Jerry Goff we're talking about. You have games where he's phenomenal, 
mainly because their running game is at its highest level. And then there's other games where it's not the most phenomenal because they're depending on him to make the requisite reads, things of that nature, and he doesn't perform at a very high level. The Green Bay Packers are the third team, and they're a top five passing attack, top 10 rushing attack. And this is a Packer team that is very similar to the team that coexisted last season. Probably going to be 13 and three like that team. And Aaron Rodgers is having another strong, spectacular season. But in my opinion, they're going to go as far as Aaron Jones' availability and productivity in the offense takes them. Now, I'm not Skip Bayless out here saying Aaron Jones is the most important player on the Packers. I'm not going to say that. But he is the most underrated offensive player on the team. And the reason why is because the stats just don't lie in this case. When he gets 10 carries or less, they don't win a game. They're 0-2. But when he's healthy, he's playing, he's involved in running him, they haven't lost yet. He has 754 yards rushing, seven touchdowns, and he's a load because he's the type of guy that can run it in between the tackles pretty well. He's more tougher than what people give him credit for. He can bounce to the outside, sure hands. He can be incorporated and valued very immensely in the passing game. And when you have an offensive aerial attack, that's basically Rodgers and Adams. That's kind of it. You're going to need to be able to lean on your running back to kind of take pressure off of Adams from having to face bracket coverage. If you run the ball effectively well, guys are going to lower the box, meaning Adams gets favorable one-on-one coverage. And even if the safety helps on the over the top, the safety still has to think and reconsider about helping the long cornerback isolated on Adams, who's having yet another all-pro season, 84 catches, 1,029 yards, and 13 touchdowns. He's on pace to probably be an all-pro talent at the receiver position in a year where Thomas, Michael Thomas, I might add, hasn't been very healthy. Julio Jones hasn't been requisitely healthy either. It's been Adams. It's been Tyreek Hill. It's been Hawkins. They've been balling at a high octane level. And you can make a case that Devontae Adams, from a pound for pound standpoint, when it comes to route running, separation, shirt hands, getting open, making plays, he's been the best receiver in all of football. But that's it. Like, that's all they have. Um, Tanyan is their second lead receiver, 41 catches, eight touchdowns. He's been a nice revelation. I know everybody in fantasy is having either flashbacks or promising memories of when Tanya exploded against the Falcons in, I think, late, late September on Monday Night Football. Uh, but they haven't found that, top, that competent number two receiver to rely on. Lazar looked promising. He had a huge game against the Saints. But then after the Saints game, he was out for a month with an injury. Valdez Scanlon has been a mixed bag. Some games he's cool. Other games, he plays so bad that fans threaten to kill him. Um, not saying that that's fair or not. It's not, but that's kind of been the inconsistencies from Scanlon's perspective. But, you know, with Green Bay, their biggest issue is defensively. All the talent in the world, I don't understand why. They just struggle to do the most simplest things in terms of defensive stops. They can't stop the run. I don't get it. You have Kenny Clark, you have Rashawn Gary, Darius Smith, Preston Smith. Look at that D-line. Nasty. Now, I know your linebackers aren't the greatest, but – your trench players in the trenches defensive line-wise are supposed to set the tone to line those minuscule backers to make plays. And then on the secondary, Jair Alexander, I love him. Kevin King, when he's healthy, is solid. But they've been prone to give up big plays because they are pretty aggressive man corners. And when they do play zone, they don't play their zone positions very well. But I'm happy that Jair Alexander is getting the respect he deserves. He's a corner that I wanted the Saints to take. In that same draft, they didn't, and they decided to reach for Davenport, who's cool, but, I mean, upside in comparison to Jerry Alexander is like comparing, you know, a ripe apple to a slightly rotten banana. Like, it's just, you know, it's tough. 
And then last but not least, the Saints. That's my team. And Saints' biggest issue is quarterback. Uh, Michael Thomas is starting to be incorporated back into the offensive fold. Alvin Kamara is having another solid year. Defensively, it's easily the best defensive unit in Saints history. The problem is the QB. Drew Brees, when he does come back from his injury, which was from 11 broken ribs, still has a noodle arm, isn't able to be as consistently accurate as he once used to be. And then Taysom Hill as the backup has been cool, but he doesn't throw cats open, not the greatest anticipatory thrower. His deep ball is downright atrocious, and he throws one ball, a bullet. So those guys are barely competent quarterbacks from a consistency basis. And as great as the Saints are as a team, their offense never maximizes its full potential with those guys under center. And in the playoffs, when you're playing the likes against Green Bay, who has the personnel to equalize your weapons on the outside at receiver, and the Rams, who are stout in the front seven and very, very suffocating on the back end, you're going to need a quarterback to be able to make a contested throw consistently. And can the Saints QBs do it on a consistent basis? I don't know. And then Saints defensively, they're really good. Number one in the league, Demario Davis is the most underrated backer in all of football, but they get hella grabby on the back end. They were leading the league in passing the first calls in the first month of the season, and they might still be in the top five because most recently in their last game against the Falcons, their undisciplinedness on the back end, even when they're in very good position, let the Falcons hang around. So those are the four teams that I've analyzed as being favorites in the NFC. Ultimately, you guys are going to want to know, <clears throat> excuse my voice, correct. I'm going to want to know who comes out of the conference. I actually have the Rams. Now, I know I was a little hard, and I'm being very, very considerate by saying a little, on Jared Goff, but that defense is nasty. And when they choose to run the football, they run it particularly well. Okay, they don't have Todd Gurley on the back end that could have a home run breaking run. But when they stick to it, they're effective, they use it, and they're consistent. They're a very good rushing team. And because of that, you always have a chance in the playoffs if you run the ball very effectively. Defensively, like I said, Aaron Donald is an all-pro. Jalen Ramsey is an all-pro. How many teams in the NFL would give maybe somebody in their franchise to have an all-pro D lineman and an all-pro secondary player on their defense. Like, having those two guys automatically makes your defense even better. It opens up opportunities for the younger complementary parts to feel emboldened and empowered to make plays, which is why in the secondary, while Ramsey may not be getting the picks, Fuller and Williams are because they're getting more targets. And, yeah, Donald leads the league in sacks. But like I said before, Leonard Floyd has been a very good benefactor from it because he's got seven. And this is a guy on Floyd that was much maligned in Chicago as being a bust, never really panned out, panned out so bad that they went after Khalil Mack. Not saying who, I mean, not saying going after Khalil Mack's a bad thing. Who wouldn't go out Camille, go after Camille, Khalil Mack? You know how many teams that have a premier pass rusher would have been like, I'll go after Khalil Mack too. So I got two premier pass rushers. But Leonard Floyd never lived up to that billing, which made the... Rams feel empowered to go after Khalil, but I do feel like the Rams and the Saints, ironically enough, just like a few years ago, are probably going to be in the NFC Championship. And I have the Rams winning because kind of like that playoff game a few years ago, even though we could have won, the reason why we didn't win is because as the game wore on, Drew Brees' limitations were exposed. They bracket covered Michael Thomas. They dared Drew Brees to throw the vertical passes down the field consistently, and he just couldn't do it and it's one of those unfortunate things where 
you know, he's just like, he's a great player, but every, like the saying, every dog has his day. Every player has their career. And once your career window closes in terms of your prime, it closes forever. And that's kind of been breezing the Saints in a nutshell. On to the NBA overview. All 30 teams get love. 15 teams from the East, 15 teams from the West, from the West, the West. So let's get started in the East. Going to talk about the New York Knicks. They're obviously going to be developing young talent this season because they're not a good team. They're going to be picking in the top five in the lottery because, again, they're not a good team. Now, Tom Thibodeau tried, tried really hard early on in the offseason, imploring front office management to help push for veteran all-star caliber players to make the team competitive. Dolan and those guys haven't shown a tendency to care. So the Knicks are going to have to go do this the tanking way. They're going to be bad because they're just not a good team. But they do have some core foundational pieces from the youth side that they can develop until they kind of reach their fullest potential by getting that game-breaking talent. Mitchell Robinson, R.J. Barrett, Obi Toppin, I'm going to be honest. Barrett had a very underrated rookie season. Mitchell Robinson in his third year could be a double-double guy. Obi Toppin, I feel like he's a poor man's play Griffin. Want to turn on the film and watch Matt Dayton. All those guys can be, at best, consolary starters. They don't have that franchise guy especially at the point guard position, the worst thing to have to them in this draft. They didn't pick in the top three because they probably needed a point guard more so than another tweener at the four spot, which they haven't topped it. Now, granted, Randall's not going to be on the team longer. Then is not going to be on the team longer. Maybe they keep Dennis Jr. around to finally see what he brings to the table. And I like DSJ, but he can't stay healthy. And then when he is healthy, he's near the end of the bench. So this team's not going to be good. Good news is they need a point guard, like I stated before. The freshman phenom known as Cade Cunningham is the truth. The Oklahoma State product is a 6'8 guard that I thought, seeing him. Thinking, oh, he's a wing. Another Tatum type. No, he's literally a point guard, and he operates like that as well. And it's early, but he's been a huge part of Oklahoma State, currently having an undefeated record in basketball played collegiately. And if I'm the Knicks, I am hoping you – you're hoping. I'm hoping. I'm hoping for them that they're not good, they get the top pick, they get Cunningham, and they finally start creating a winner in the mecca that the NBA organization kind of deserves since they're a grandfathered-ass team. The Boston Celtics, man, students resolved the center position, um, and now they don't have Kimball Walker for a month this season. And probably expected to take Kimball Walker's spot is Jeff Teague, and Jeff Teague is a complete shell of what he used to be. He averaged single digits in scoring. He hasn't done that since the early stages of his career with the Atlanta Hawks. Now, with Boston, as I stated before, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, great duo of scorers, great duo of players. They're going to have to elevate their play even more, not just for Boston to be able to compete for an Eastern Conference title, just to survive the first month of December into January, because I'm going to be real. I know they're trying to trade Campbell Walker. I know Campbell Walker got hella flag for not defending very well in the playoffs, for struggling offensively against the Miami Heat zone. But Kimball Walker's a baller. He's a bucket. He averages 20 a game, five assists, four rebounds. He, he's tough. And expecting to plug in Jeff Teague and think everything will be all right is a mistake because it's not. In terms of the center position, Tristan Thompson, eh, it's not a center. Like He's similar to the build of Tyson Robert Williams. They never resolved that five-man issue. Hassan Whiteside may have made more sense because while Whiteside is a little bit of an inconsistent offensive player, he's a rim protector in some in some sense of a defensive deterrence because of his size and things of that nature. 
This is a small ball team that's going to rely on their guards and wings to play well. But since one of their premier guards is going to be out, that means you may be looking to the likes of younger prospects coming in like Carson Edwards, Romeo Lakeford, holding in the fourth for this team to be successful. And it's tough, man. I just hope Boston survives the first few months of the season. But even if they do, I don't look at this team as a, as a unit, as a first formidable competitor coming out of the Eastern Conference. Now we've got the Toronto Raptors. We all know what time it is with the Raptors. They're trying to make the team as competitive as possible. So when 2021 happens, in terms of free agency, Giannis Antetokounmpo feels enticed and attracted to go there. They locked up their premier hidden gems, Pascal Siakam, Fred Van Vliet. They're locked in for the foreseeable future. They didn't re-sign Marcus Gasol and Serge Ibaka because they felt like they were a little bit cost expensive. And they wanted to save as much capital as possible for the free agency next offseason. So they went and got Alex Lynn and Aaron Baines, who kind of are the same guy. Uh, and they still have Kyle Lowry. And I feel, honestly, one of the few people that feel like Kyle Lowry is going to stay a whole year with the Raptors. And if they feel like they're in a good shape to get Giannis, they may keep Lowry as a recruiting chip. But Toronto, this is the time to sleep on the Raptors. They're not going anywhere productive. I'm not saying they're not going to make the playoffs. They will, but they're one and done. The East is competitive. And as lowly as the Boston Celtics have kind of sunk, they're not beating the Celtics. They're not beating Brooklyn. They're not beating Milwaukee. And a lot of that is because I'm not sold that Siakam took the next step offensively. And Van Vliet is a very promising player and a poster boy for undrafted guards everywhere, but he's still undersized. And there's only so much he can do at that size offensively and defensively. Nurse is going to have them guys ready to play. They're going to be a top tier defensive team in the league, but they're wanting to come playoff time. Brooklyn Nets, not going to talk that much about this team because we know what time it is with the Nets. Uh, what is their offensive identity? Right now, they have, they're going to have four guys maybe in their starting lineup that can score 15 plus points a game. Durant and Irving, they're going to be the focal points, obviously. But Nash has alluded to the fact that maybe he's going to incorporate uh, position with basketball. You got Dan Tony as your assistant coach, Amari Stoudemire as an assistant coach. Guys that are all were incorporated with that Phoenix Suns team that were revolutionary for the game of basketball, seven seconds or less. So are they going to bring that style of basketball to the Nets? If so, we'll be very entertaining to watch because those guys are kind of relatively young. I mean, KD's probably the elder statesman. He probably can't run as he used to, but open looks for everyone. Thing is, defensively, are they going to be as locked in on that side of basketball as they will be offensively? If they are, they can switch a lot of things. And if everything comes together and these guys are able to mesh, buy in, and achieve the ultimate goal, this is a basketball team that I feel like can win it all and come out the Eastern Conference. The Chicago Bulls, they're going to have Billy Donovan as their head coach. He's known for being a very good game planner in terms of using the assets that he has before him and kind of creating a game plan and a team-oriented mentality for those guys to not only achieve their own individual success, but as a collective help the team supersede its boundaries. Did it Oklahoma City? Those guys were in a three-guard lineup with Paul, Alexander, and Schroeder. And that helped them win 44 games and take the Rockets to seven. Now, if we talk about Billy Donovan from the X's and those standpoint, late game situations, say goodbye, because he's not good at that. But he's coming to Chicago to help guys such as Levine, Laurie Markinen, Kobe White, Wendell Carter, fulfill their fullest potential as young talents. Levine's in his prime. He's reached his, not reached his potential, but he's at least met his potential knows how high it can be. And that offensive system is going to run through him. 
But Laurie Markin, if he can stay healthy, has a chance to be an 18, a 19 point per game scorer. And Kobe White was the ultimate revelation. Got him in the first round, kind of an unheralded gem in last year's draft. And it panned out, took Chris Dunn's job. And he's a type of guy, it's not the traditional point. He's a score first guard, but he had games where he filled it up. And having another scoring option opposite of Levine in the backcourt is always going to keep defenses on the toes, preventing from just keying in on Levine. And then Wendell Carter, there was one more moment in the offseason where it was a chance that he could have been traded, you know what I'm saying, which meant the Bulls were kind of considering maybe an upgrade at the center spot. He's still here. And he averaged 11-9 and last season very quietly. Um, They have four guys within their starting lineup that have the potential to all average double figures in scoring, which I think may have been the main reason why they got Patrick Williams so high at such a reachable spot in the top five, because they probably feel like, look, we got our four scorers offensively. We need a glue guy that can put it all together at the wing spot defensively, and then we'll be able to maximize our potential. I'm thinking that's what the Chicago front office thought. It's up to Donovan to put it all together. We'll see what generally happens. Cleveland Cavaliers, you got to find out where can this team go from here offensively can Colin Sexton and Darius Garland can they coexist Sexton has actually improved every year he's gotten a lot of flack early in his career for being not a professional kind of a tunnel vision type player still don't understand why they got Garland as well the draft after but they're here can they coexist with each other that's the key Garland wasn't really able to stay healthy most of the year but I like them coming out of Vanderbilt when he did play in the NBA he showed immense flashes of talent Kevin Porter Jr. is that other aspect in terms of a one-on-one guy. Didn't get a lot of opportunities, but when he did, he blossomed very well. He's got some legal troubles, though, so it's more important to figure out, is he going to stay on the team or be on a one-way ticket to prison? But my issue with the Cavs is with J.B. Bakerstaff as their coach, they have a lot of guys that they are going to entrust within their future that basically play one-on-one. And while that'd be great in N1 basketball for recreational purposes for a viewer, you're in the NBA locker room with the NBA team. They're going to have to decide which out of these one-on-one guys will be the ultimate focal point of their offense. And from there, with the other two guys, you either decide, do you, can you help them buy into a more reduced role or trade them to kind of fill out the rest of the roster to properly formulate a complete team? The Detroit Pistons, their rebuild begins. Um, obviously, Blake Griffin and Derrick Rose are still on the team, but do you honestly expect them to be there beyond the all-star rate? Because I don't. And the Pistons also agree that they don't expect so either. These are the guys they've drafted in the last two seasons. Killian Hayes this year. He's a point guard. Sadiq Bey, a tweener who I like coming out of Vandy. Not Vandy, Villanova. My bad, Villanova. Isaiah Stewart from Washington. Sekou Dubai in last year's draft. They also signed Jerry and Grant in free agency. And Dwayne Casey still has a job. Because one of the biggest things that a lot of people give him credit for is developing the young talent in Toronto. He's going to be given that opportunity to do so in Detroit. My issue is Detroit has a very huge surplus of wings, which means who are they going to, how is this going to work? Like, obviously, somebody's going to stand out amongst the bunch, but I didn't understand why they went after Jerry and Grant, and I didn't really understand why Jerry and Grant went after them, because he told Denver, I want a bigger role. They paid the same money, both teams, and you're going to a wing stat Detroit team where you might get pushed out of the picture because if the young talent shows upside, they're going to play no more. I mean, so, I mean, that's because they've made an investment draft capital-wise. So, I, I don't know. I don't know where Detroit goes from here, but they are rebuilding. Goal is obviously be sucky, but at the same time, have Rose and Griffin play well so their market value at the trade deadline can elevate to high levels. 
And then you ship them off somewhere else, go on a whole bunch of assets and rebuild from there. The Milwaukee Bucks. Did they truly solve their point guard issue? Because Drew Holiday early on in his career with the Philadelphia 76ers was a solid point guard, but I just don't look at him as a point guard. I mean, he's played a lot of shooting guard with the Pelicans recently, played it very well. If they want him to run the offense and then at the other end defend opposing teams, one and two guards, that's a lot asking for him. The ultimate thing I need Budenholzer to do, Giannis needs to become more of a traditional four. And then in small ball lineups, he needs to become more of a traditional five. I know he's talked about how he wants to become a better ball handler and shooter and playmaker on the wing. But I feel like offensively, if they maximize his ability in terms of length, power, athleticism, and vast immense destruction near the rim, they get the most out of him. They don't do that. And that's where we are. And so that's my biggest issue with the Bucs. Um, they do have backup league guard and DJ Augustine, Bobby Porters. And so while they try to go for Bogdan and Bogdanovich and free and were able to do so, they rounded out the rest of the roster. So it's a lot more deeper, full of guys I feel like can come in and produce in the point production perspective. How they utilize Giannis ultimately is going to dictate how far this team can go. The Washington Wizards, it's going to take a playoff berth for Bradley Booth to continue to stay. He submitted his undying loyalty to the franchise. They went on and got Russell Westbrook in a trade exchange where the wall goes to the Rockets and Westbrook goes to the Wizards. Now, Washington, look at the team in general. They're hella small. Thomas Robinson is going to be their center. They have a ton of wings, but they have a ton of wings that have nice potential. I like Rui Hachimura. If Denny Advita can transform into the ceiling that a lot of scouts had as Hito Turkoglu, they got a nice compilation of wings that offensively can pitch in and be productive opposite of Bradley Beal. Because Bradley Beal is going to get his buckets. But for this team to be a playoff team, they have to be a little bit more well-balanced. Because we know, and they probably will, but a little well more balanced out. Because from a defensive perspective, they're not really stopping nobody. Rui Achimura is not a great defender. Denny Avita is not a great on-ball defender. Westbrook used to be competent. Now he's chosen to just be a loafer. And Bradley Beal is about his buckets more so than the defense. So they're going to give up a lot of points under Scott Brooks, but they're going to score a lot. And it's still the East. So if they hit a nice little rhythm early on in the year and set the tone, don't be shocked if they're a top five seed in the East. Don't be shocked. The Charlotte Hornets, they're jumpstarting their rebuild stage as well. LaMelo Ball, Devontae Graham, Miles Bridges, P.J. Washington. That's a nice core. I expect Graham to go to the bench, six-man. Had a great point production last season as a young prospect. Miles Bridges and P.J. Washington are solid glue guys. So I got to give Jordan credit. He's flubbed a lot in recent drafts, but he's drafted a nice compilation of glue guys as well as investing in some unheralded talent. They're going to pivot from Rozier and Malik Monk. That's why they paid the big looks for Gordon Hayward. That's why they invested in LaMelo Ball. I like LaMelo Ball's ceiling. That being said, upside and ceiling, because I feel like his ceiling and his upside, I mean, they're both all, all world. The issue with the Hornets is, that being said, they're not good enough. Don't think they have enough shooting. It's, they don't have enough game-breaking talent. And the biggest issue is, I don't expect Hayward to stay healthy. So if Hayward doesn't stay healthy, then they go from winning 30 games to probably 25. And if they win 25, they're not going to make the playoffs. However, they'll be back in the lottery. Draft is hella deep this year. And you may be able to put the pieces that you need to make a foundational team. So, got the Hawks. In the Heat, I like the Hawks in terms of Trey Young, John Collins, array of vests that they have, but they need one of their young guys to emerge. Um, Kevin Herter, Hunter, and Cam Reddish have not emerged. They've not emerged at all to the point where they had to go out and get vexed to kind of take their spots. 
to kind of get provide that instant productivity um, from a starting perspective and then have those young guys basically come off the bench and provide a spark because the Hawks told the world they're trying to make a playoff push now. And I think they will. They're going to score a lot of points. Then they're going to be a little bit better defensively than what people give credit for. Got to give the ATO credit for that. They're trying to be competitive now than wait till later. But one of the young guys are going to have to emerge as a prominent third young scoring option. Of the Miami Heat, they're bringing it all back again, and that's awesome. My question is, they're old. Can they do it again? Can they make it happen? Not sure. A little bit indecisive on that stance, but I do like what they are bringing back, and I like what they bring to the table. Um, Goran Dragic, uh, Miles Leonard, those two guys are guys that they gave heavy bread to, and they're in their 30s. But the Heat, perfect storm last year in the bubble. Can they continue to duplicate that assist long term? I don't think so. Bucks are coming back stronger. Brooklyn Nets are going to be a juggernaut. You're going to have to get past them. That's going to be a little tough. You're banking on a lot. And it's nothing against the Heat. Great story. I'm not saying I don't believe in them, but eh, it's it's tough. And then the Indiana Pacers. One minute, we all thought they're blowing it up. And then the next minute, they're not blowing it up. Two main reasons why. No one wanted Victor Oladipo. And no one wanted Miles Turner. So the Pacers are going to run the team back. Different coach, new coach, Nate. Um, they're going to make the playoffs then. Because I was expecting the Pacers to take a step back if they didn't bring the team back. But this team, healthy, has a chance to be a top four team in the East. But that's about it. Maybe they make the first round super competitive. Could catch someone sleeping at the wrong time. Maybe a Boston. But they're not a true contender in the East. And then once that kind of diverges itself into reality... They're going to blow it up next season. But two things I would like to note, the minus Sabonis is a stud. And Malcolm Brogdon is a stud too. And that means a lot because when they were kind of coming into the draft picture, you know, Sabonis was a great player at Gonzaga. Uh, Brogdon was a second-round pick for Virginia, even though he was the ACC Defensive Player of the Year. And they've kind of submitted themselves in the solid pros. And to that, I give them kudos from their individual ability to work on their game and become better players. That being said, the Pacers in totality, no, not taking them serious. In the West, Denver Nuggets, Michael Porter Jr., and Bol Bol, their time is now. When the team didn't, weren't able to re-sign Jerry and Grant and weren't able to re-sign Mason Pumley, a lot of Bol Bol and NBA to kind of take their spots on the roster, and they're going to get a substantial minute uptick that they didn't have in the past. And so how they perform in those lineups are going to be huge because Denver's a very deep team, and they're a very talented team. And so if those two guys can at least live up to half of their draft day potential, the sky's the limit for this basketball team. However, the knock on Denver's, they're very, very unpredictable and they're very, very helter-skelter. A lot of that is because their best players in Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic have tendencies to shine bright when it matters and then go dark when it matters. So the Minnesota Timberwolves, how would they be with Carl Anthony Towns and D'Angelo Russell? Got an array of offensive products led by Ant Edwards um, and Malik Beasley. The issue is, can they stop people? Ryan Saunders, I don't like him as a coach. One of the main reasons why I don't think he preaches defensive accountability. And this team has a ton of guys that can fill it up. Watch out for the name Jaden McDaniels. He could be an underrated stud as a rookie. But who's the stoppers? I mean, I do remember when Carl D. Towns used to play defense. Now he doesn't anymore. That's going to be an issue with that team. Oklahoma City, nothing, nothing really to talk about in terms of how they'll be next season. But the rebuild is real. I mean, they have 17 first-round picks through 2026, and Sean, 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 but Shea Gilders-Alexander, that's the best player. And for the next two years, that's going to be the best show in OKC because they're not going to be that good. I like Lou Dortz. Diallo is cool as a high flyer, but the goal is for them to suck for at least two years. 
to where they can get the premier talents in the next two drafts. And then we'll probably see Oklahoma City back to relevancy in the middle of this decade. But until then, it's a rebuilding stage, and it's all about Alexander improving as a player. The Portland Trailblazers, they're going for the West. They literally brought back the same team from 2019. They went back and got Canner. Collins is here. Finally, Nurk is just healthy. Um, array of guards, as usual. Derek Jones Jr. at the wing. Robert Covington in a trade at the wing. They brought Melo back for a minimum, which shocked a lot of people. Biggest thing is their guards. Last year, Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum, for as much as they're known for filling it up, had career years as playmakers. Lillard had a career-high eight assists. McCollum had a career-high four. That's a great achievement for those guys. But I need Lillard to have 10 assists a game, and I need McCollum to at least have six. They're going to have to become more than just ISO guys because the individuals that they have finally on the wing can catch and shoot and catch and slash. And for those guys that live up to their player builds, they have to get the basketball to be able to maximize their offensive potential. If they're not and they're watching those guys do the ISO show, team's not going to maximize its full ceiling. That's my original opinion on these guys in Portland. Now, the Utah Jazz, Donovan Mitchell, he's a bucket. He exploded. He submitted his status as a premier shooting guard in the game. But the problem is he's on his own offensively. Conley fell off a cliff last season, especially when Bogdanovich was hurt, and he was expected to be the second offensive option. He couldn't do it. Bogdanovich had a career year, but he is 30. Conley's 31. And they have guys that can score, but they're very erratic when it comes to scoring. Even their best player, Mitchell, has spurts, has spurts where he's not on. And as talented of a defender as Gobert is, he's not an offensive threat. We know Utah defensively, they're going to bring it. But offensively, you just don't know. You just don't know how they're going to score. And when your best scorer in Mitchell has to basically average, coming into the game, you got to get 30 for you to have a chance. That's great to watch in regular season. In the postseason, it's just not sustainable. Tough luck for the Utah Jazz. But they're going to be a tough team, and they're going to be a playoff team. The Warriors, positionally basketball with Clay does seem like a reality because in the past, when they would have guys that would set screens and handle the ball and allow Curry and Clay to come off those screens and shoot threes, Curry's the only shooter, and they have a bunch of slashers. So I expect a lot of small ball lineups. Um, I do expect these slashers to be utilized within our offense. Kelly Oubre has a chance to be a very solid two-way player. He's come along well. How Oubre and Wiggins coexist together remains to be seen. Draymond's going to continue to be that Swiss Army life. James Ivan has huge upside. I just didn't appreciate how people were sleeping on him because he didn't play that full collegiate schedule. I like what the Warriors bring to the table. The biggest question with them is, offensively, how are they going to look like? The Clippers and the Suns. Clippers, this is all I'm going to say. I mean, these guys made me very upset when the postseason ended. So for them, George, Leonard, play, play well. When things go wrong, be honest with yourselves and hold everybody accountable. Only way you're going to hold anybody accountable is if you hold yourself accountable. They looked a little bit locked in now. Not a huge fan of Ty Lue being their coach, but if he allows allows those guys to be themselves and those guys allow Ty Lue to massage their egos when things are going a little rough, these guys can reach their potential, but I'm just not sold on the Clippers. They didn't solve that point guard issue. That's going to be a problem. The Suns, they got Chris Paul now, which means they'll be a playoff team. And I am high on the Suns. I believe in them. Devin Booker went from overrated to a talent for me. I mean, he was a guy that went from scoring empty points to those points translating to something. Plethora of wings that can three and D it up. Um, you know what these guys are going to bring to the table. Paul elevates them to a playoff team. He's a lead guard that's going to give Booker and Aiden the best shot opportunities that the Suns can buy. Um, the Lakers, they're going to be back in the finals. May reason why the duo of LeBron and AD, even if LeBron falls from number one to like number four or five, that's the best player in the league. 
they're still a tough out. As long as AD stays healthy, their bench got even better. And getting Gasol, it allows him to be a starting five big and allows AD to be at the power four spot. Huge. Kings, love D Fox, love Buddy Hield. Um, surprised to kill Buddy Hield. Marvin Bagley's got to he's got to do something. He's got to stay healthy and he's got to produce. If he doesn't, you know, he's on the out, and the Kings officially are gonna have to rebuild again. Uh, but watch out though for Tyrese Halliburton. He could be the next SGA in this draft. Um, we look at the Memphis Grizzlies in particular. Um, they're a team I like a lot. Jaron Jackson knows he's not gonna play. He's not gonna play. Might not play this season. And because of that, I don't see this team becoming a playoff squad. It's going to be interesting to see can John Morant become a better on-ball defender. He kind of got exposed in the bubble a little bit on that side. Uh, Dallas Mavericks, I don't see them as a playoff team like a lot of people are. Main reason why is because I don't know if Porzingis is going to stay healthy. And Luka Doncic can only do so much. And around him is not enough. I like the young guys that they have. Josh Green, uh, Terrell Terry, they have great upside, but they're young and they can only do so much. Um, The Pelicans, they're going to need to improve their backcourt spot. Bledsoe and Ball. That ain't going to do it. I like their front court with Zion, Brandon Ingram, and Steven Adams, but non-shooting backcourt back there? Mm-mm. And San Antonio and Houston are rounded all out. Now, the Spurs, they're going to blow it up eventually. DeMar DeRozan and the Elders aren't going to be there any longer. It's all about seeing what those young guys can do. Led by DeJounte Murray, Kelton Johnson, and Lonnie Walker. Uh, Vassell is probably the best 3-D wing in the draft. He's going to be a perfect fit for this guy, for, for the team. I hope he lives up to his upside. I know the team is going to be able to kind of make him into the ideal player that they want him to be. And the Houston Rockets, James Harden is gone. So when he's gone, are the Rockets going to be content with blowing it up or getting nice complimentary pieces to kind of be middle of the road in Houston, which will ultimately buy them time to officially transition to a tank job. That being said, this is the end of the podcast. It was a great first segment for you guys. Um, hopefully you guys are going to be able to tune in for episode two, uh, be able to follow us on at Intel podcast on Instagram, be able to follow us as well as at independent Intel podcast underscore on Twitter. We're out here trying to make a name for myself. I feel like I got a great content a product for you guys to be able to listen to. It's going to be NBA and NFL topics on a weekly basis. Got guests over here that want to be able to join. I have one person, I think hit me up being like, you didn't mind being a guest on the show. That's something we're going to try to make it to. And this is a podcast that I feel like it's going to be um, acceptable, listenable, even if that's where it's listenable word, and productive for the masses. That being said, I hope you guys enjoy. Have a great night.